So when me and my wife, Julie, uh, were planning our wedding uh, some eight years ago or so, when we started planning, it's different how long they've been married. That's a harder question to ask. So some time ago, we were planning our wedding, and uh, one of my responsibilities was to plan and to book the honeymoon. Just to be clear, I did. She helped me a little bit, but, but I did that. But I, I, want to, I want you to imagine with me a situation that is hypothetical. What I'm about to share with you did not happen, but I want you to imagine that this is how that did actually go. I want you to imagine my wife, Julie, came to me and said, hey, Samer, um, I need you to plan and book the honeymoon. And imagine she comes to me a week later and she's like, hey, did you do it? And I'm like, did I, did I do it? No, I didn't, I didn't do it. But babe, let me tell you what I did do. I wrote down exactly what you told me to do. I studied it. I highlighted the key words and the phrase. I circled the verbs. Like I, I studied exactly what you told me to do. And she's like, hey, cool. I need you to plan and book the honeymoon. Imagine she comes back a week later. Hey, Sam, would you do it? And I'm like, did I do it? No, nah, but babe, I put on a note card and put it on the dash in front of my speedometer. Like I couldn't even see how fast I was going, but that's how important what you said was to me, you know? And I put it on my mirror. So every time I'm brushing my teeth, like I'm see, I see it 30 times a day. In fact, I've memorized it. I meditate on it. I think about it. I, I, I even told somebody else what you told me. It was amazing. Imagine she comes back a week later. Hey, Samer, did you plan and book the honeymoon? And I'm like, did I do it? Nah, but babe, our small group came over. <laughs> and we talked about it and we wrestled with it. And then my friend brought his guitar and we sang about it. <laughs> and it was so emotional. I was crying, they were crying. And we, we, we laid hands and we prayed. She drop kicked me in the throat. And then she'd go plan and book the honeymoon. Silly example, hypothetical situation, at least in my life. But the point is this, the difference is in the doing, which is the tension we've been wrestling with throughout the course of this series. This is the way where we have been trying to recapture what it means not to just to believe in Jesus, but to follow in his way, to take the idea of following Jesus back to its first century roots. And we've wrestled with the tension. Hey, you can be a Christian. You can be a Christian, yet not follow in the way of Jesus. And kind of the ways, one of the ways we've talked about it is this, that you can be convinced, but not committed you can be convinced about Jesus. You can be a Christian, your eternal security, secure heaven, all of that, but not committed to following in his way. Not committed to ordering your life around his way. And, and we've said this just by way of review that what the first century Christians, what they called themselves was so telling. They didn't call themselves Christians. In fact, the term Christian was given to Christians by those outside of the faith. It was a political term. All it meant was those that belonged to the party of Jesus. What Christians called themselves, if you were to open up the pages of Acts, which is a, a book in our New Testament that documents the explosion of the early church after the death and resurrection of Jesus, this is what they called themselves. They called themselves followers of the way. 
And if you were to look this phrase up, those that belonged to the way in Acts, the way, that word, what it means in the Greek, it means a whole way of life. That the idea, the idea that you can believe in Jesus but not order your life around him, it would have been such a foreign concept to anybody that quite literally followed Jesus. There was not an area of their lives that was not influenced and impacted by the teaching of Jesus. That, that following Jesus wasn't just a belief. No, 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 it was way more than that. And according to Jesus, it was more than that. It was a way of ordering your life. And Jesus, again, just by way of view, Jesus, he, had, he has a lot of titles today, right? We're on the side of history. We know Jesus as the resurrected one, as the Messiah, as the Christ. But when he walked around in the first century, he would have walked around with this title, Rabbi, which is just Hebrew for teacher. And just like any rabbi before Jesus, and just like rabbis during the time of Jesus, and just like rabbis after Jesus, they had disciples. That a rabbi would invite disciples, they would invite students to come follow them. And this was a massive honor for anybody in the first century because rabbis, they were the most respected position in Jewish society. And so to follow and to study under a rabbi, and we unpacked this in depth in week one, but it was a high honor. And here was the goal. You dropped everything, you quit everything because you followed a rabbi with one goal in mind, to become a carbon copy of your rabbi, to be a carbon copy of your teacher. And so while the New Testament uses the word disciple, which can also mean student, and we use the word disciple a lot in the first century, when rabbis called students to follow them, and when Jesus, when Jesus called his first disciples to say, come follow me, the best word that encapsulates the goal is this, is the word apprentice. Apprentice. Because a student can learn something for student's sake, but an apprentice, an apprentice seeks to learn in order to be just like So following Jesus is to order your life around his. And while culturally the the, the world looks different and the cultural context is different, the goal is the same, to be a carbon copy of our teacher, Jesus. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven, this was his invitation to his apprentices and the crowd all listening and watching. He said, enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many will enter through it. There is one way you can go, live your life apart from me, doing your own thing. But he says, but small is the gate and narrow is the road. And this word literally means way, but narrow is the way that leads to life and only few will find it. Small is the gate. That's an invitation to enter into and follow him. And then he says, and follow along the narrow way, the process of ordering your life around his. He said that way, that narrow way, though it might seem countercultural, counterproductive, and even counterintuitive, he said, I'm telling you, this is how you find the life that you ultimately want. And he says, only few will find it. Not because it is only available to a few, but because it will be the road far less traveled. So Jesus says, I'm going to show you the way. So kind of where we've been kind of throughout the series, we've, we've said, hey, there's this path. There's a path that Jesus has called us to follow. He's invited us to follow the narrow way. And we said last week that, look, there's a price. There is a cost to following along the narrow way, denying yourself and taking up your cross. But we said, though, there's a cost to following Jesus. There's a greater cost not to. And so today, where we'll kind of land the plane and wrap up the series is to unpack together the posture of one who follows along the narrow way. 
We're gonna jump into a conversation into this really powerful moment that Jesus has with his apprentices in John chapter 13. If you've been around a church for any amount of time, um, you've heard of this story. Even if you aren't a person of faith, you've heard of this story for sure. But a little bit of context before we jump into this powerful moment. Jesus, in, in, in John 13, it's the final moments that he has with his apprentices before he's to go to the cross. So it's his final moments, these precious moments of his earthly ministry with what his apprentices and his closest friends. And so he's, he's giving them some final instruction and encouragement. And just before this moment that we, so that's kind of the timetable that we're on. And just before this moment that we jump into, um, what we know beforehand is that a couple of the disciples were arguing. They were arguing about who would hold the highest in the greatest position in this kingdom that Jesus came to establish. They did not fully understand. They thought Jesus was gonna come in, go into Jerusalem, take over the world, conquer Rome, and quite literally do it right there in the moment. So they didn't fully understand what he was doing, but they were arguing, who's gonna be the greatest in this kingdom that Jesus is here to establish? So they're arguing about greatness and all that. So it is within that context that this powerful, teachable moment happens in John chapter 13. So John chapter 13, verse one, it was just over, it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world, right? His death was imminent and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is John's commentary. Like he loved us so well and, and they had no idea that Jesus was about to show them the full extent of his love as he'd go to the cross. Verse two, the evening meal was in progress. It was, um, it was about to get started and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Hold on to this. This is the first reference in this passage we have, direct reference of Judas who would betray Jesus. Hold on to that for just a second. John goes on, Jesus knew, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So here John gives us, it feels out of place, but not for long. He gives us this status clarification. John wants to make clear that there is no question who the most powerful person in the room was. John wants to be clear. There is no question who is the one with the authority. There's no question who is the one with the status. It is Jesus, who was the son of God, who yes, had the title of rabbi, but don't get it twisted or mixed up. God has put all authority under heaven and on earth under him. So then what happens next? Shocking. Verse four, so, so he, Jesus, got up. He got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Jesus gets down and begins to wash his apprentices' feet. Now, foot washing in the first century was very common because they had dusty roads, right? Like the, the, the paved roads were reserved for the, reserved for the big cities, the richest cities. And in first century Palestine, you walked around on dirt roads and you wore sandals without socks. That's how you're supposed to wear sandals, by the way. <laughs> and if, if you wear socks, we can, we can talk about it later. 
So as you're walking through first century Palestine, by the time you get to your destination, your feet are dirty. And so when you get to the house, right, it it feels gross. The sand's everywhere. So you wash it off. And depending on what house you went to, if they had a servant, a servant would be the one to wash the feet of the guest, right? Hospitality was huge in first century music culture and still today. Um, But not every house had a servant. And so in most cases, you get to a house and you'd wash your own feet. I did read, though, um, that oftentimes as well, what you would see is you'd have the kids who would wash the feet of their parents or their guests. So what my family is going to do today is go watch the sermon together when we get home. (laughs) And I'm going to make Harper pay very close attention. So no matter how you slice it, either the servant did it, you did it yourself, or the kids did it. Never was it the one with the status, the position. It was certainly never the rabbi. And notice the detail that John gives us here. There are six action verbs within these two verses. He rises. He takes the outer clothing off. So he's kind of like he's got his undershirt on and he wraps the towel around his waist. Right? Imagine a server putting on an apron on. Then he pours the water. He washes and he dries. The emphasis is on the action of Jesus. The master teacher did not come just to teach, but he came to model and to show. And John, John, as he's writing this down after that, he wants us to imagine the scene. He wants us to see it. He wants us to hear it. He wants us to feel what it would have been like in the room. In fact, you can almost hear all the sounds, the clanking of the basin and the pouring out of the water and the ringing out of the towel as the droplets hit the water in the basin. This would have been a wild scene. And the disciples, wide-eyed, baffled, shocked, looking at each other thinking, should he be doing this? Do I, do I say thank you? Should I tell him that he missed a spot? <laughs> Confused, but for sure the room would have been dead silent. You could have heard a pin drop until Peter. Jesus gets to Peter and he says what everybody else is thinking. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you you going to be the one to wash my feet? The emphasis in the Greek is on you and my. Come on, of all people, Jesus, are you going to be the one to really wash my feet? Peter is rightfully confused at the role reversal here. His rabbi washing his feet, there was no universe where this made sense. This was not the way of doing things. It was backwards and it was upside down. Jesus looks at Peter and he just replies, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Hey, hey Peter, you think this is crazy? You will understand better what I'm willing to do for Jesus is referring to the cross. He's referring to the crucifixion. And this act of service was something unbelievable and filled with so much humility, so clearly beneath Jesus. But he's telling Peter, hey man, you have no idea the lengths that I'm going to go. If this makes you uncomfortable, you just wait. If you think this is backwards, you just wait. If this makes you upset, and I'm just telling you, you have no idea. You have no idea the lengths I'm willing to go. 
the humiliation I'm going to be willing to endure to demonstrate for you my love for you. You will better understand later. Peter still, again, doesn't fully understand, still indignant, says, no, you shall never wash my feet. And this is so reminiscent of Peter's response that we saw last week. If you'll remember, Jesus is teaching them that he's gonna go suffer um, and he's gonna die on the cross and be raised again and Peter doesn't like it and so he rebukes Jesus. That shall never happen to you. And so Jesus turns it into a teachable moment and here Peter again saying, no, no, this is not the way, Jesus. This is not how this is supposed to work. There's a better way. There's a more comfortable way. There's There's a way that more honors your position and your status. There was no world where this made sense for these apprentices of Jesus, and there was certainly no rabbi who was willing to get down and wash his students' feet. Peter had no category for this. So Jesus answered, well, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Again, Peter didn't fully understand this. He'll piece it together later. What Jesus is referring to here is that, hey, I'm gonna go to the cross and I'm gonna die and it will ultimately wash away your sins. And because I've washed away your sins, you can have a part in me. You can be relationally connected to me. And then Peter responds, loving Jesus, I wanna be a part of you. I wanna be with you, right? Then Lord, if that's the case, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. If that's the case, but let's just make this a bath and I'll jump in head first, right? Let's just, let's, that's, that's great. I love you. I'm with you. Let, let's go, let's go. So Jesus, I would imagine with a smirk on his face, gently kind of discourages, kind of moves past Peter's excess and he just says, look, those who have, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean. In other words, I know your heart and and, and you're with me, though not every one of you. For he knew, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone is clean. So here we have a second explicit reference to the one in the room that would betray Jesus. Hold on to that for just a second. And when he finished, John tells us, when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he asked, do you understand? Teachable moment. Do you understand? Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. He probably would have seen the bewilderment. He knew exactly what he was doing. So he says, hey, do you understand? Let me teach you. And he says, you call me teacher and Lord. I love that. Jesus uses both titles. And rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Notice Jesus here. He uses both titles to powerfully communicate his point. As Lord, if I've washed your feet, then none of you are above it. And as your teacher, if I've washed your feet, you are to do as I do. Jesus goes on in verse 15. I have set an example. I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And this word example, it literally means pattern. In other words, hey, I've shown you the pattern. Like if you've seen me do this over and over and over and over again, and I'm telling you, I want you to follow my pattern. I want you to order the pattern of your life around the pattern of my life. I've showed you the way. This is not new. Here's the example. Now do as I do. 
says in verse 16, I, very truly I tell you, there's no servant, which was all of them and all of us, greater than his master, which is Jesus. And nor is there a messenger, them, me and you, greater than the one who sent him. You and I never graduate past being an apprentice of Jesus because we will never be greater and they will never become greater. Jesus, Jesus, the one with all the authority, all the power and all the status gets down to wash the feet of his apprentices. He takes the role of a humble servant. This is so, so important. We've talked about path, price, and now posture. Jesus takes a lowly posture. And this over and over again characterizes the very posture of Jesus, that it was lowly, who he is, who he came to be, and what he came to model. In the Gospel of Matthew, I just want to jump over there really, really quickly. Look at this one little snippet. Jesus is having this really personal conversation, this intimate conversation with his apprentices, with his disciples. And he says to them in Matthew 11, I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is the only place in all of the New Testament where Jesus explicitly speaks about his heart. And in the scriptures, whenever somebody references and speaks about their heart, they are describing who they are at the center and at the very core of their being. And the word lowly, it comes from the Greek word that that means humble. And so sometimes in the New Testament, it's a matter of virtue, humility. But here in Matthew 11 and what Jesus is modeling for us in John chapter 13, it's not the virtue of humility. The idea of being lowly also carries the sense of experiencing hardship, being thrust downward by life's circumstances, a humiliation is the idea. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I am lowly in heart, and what is he really modeling in John chapter 13? Lowly in heart in this sense, that he, who was God, God the Son, literally came down from the splendor of heaven. That he lowered himself. He demoted himself into the realm of humanity when he took on human flesh. He left the skybox of heaven and took on human limitations, putting aside his divine prerogative to dwell amongst us, not to serve or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To be lowly, for Jesus to be lowly in heart. Here's what he's communicating about who he is and what he came to do. He's come to make himself accessible. He came to make himself available. He came to make himself approachable to all of humanity, a lowly servant. And Jesus often taught in parables, and here he shows his apprentices a parable, an object lesson in humility, what it looks like, and the lengths we should be willing to go to take a lowly posture. And don't miss this. Because of his position, Because of his authority and because of his status, here's what he did for them and for us. He took away all of our excuses. He obliterated all of our reasons not to follow in his example. And do you remember those two references of Judas that I told you to hold on to? Even he got his feet washed. Jesus even served him and demonstrated great love to his wood be betrayer. 
absolutely no excuses. So Jesus concludes, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And this word blessed, it literally means happiness, gladness, a fulfillment, a sense of joy and contentment, not like material blessing or financial blessing. It's the the sense of joy and happiness and gladness. And Jesus says, hey, listen, if you live down this narrow path, if this model is what you follow, you'll be blessed. And notice, not by knowing anything, but by doing. Responding to what you know is how you So what we've done and what we're going to do today is we've organized our service to end a little bit early and we've actually set up 25 foot washing stations out in the hallway. Just kidding. (laughs) Some of y'all were like, what? (laughs) What a day to sit by someone you don't know. Am I right? (laughs) I'm never bringing my friends back to church, you know? No, for the disciples, certainly, certainly there would have been moments where they would have literally done this. I mean, culturally, in a context, it made sense, okay? That's not the world that we're living in anymore, but Jesus also meant it, obviously, in a much broader sense, that he was pointing them to a posture that he wanted them to live with, a posture that he wanted them to model with, a posture that he wanted them to see with, a posture that would characterize his ultimate sacrifice on the cross for the world. Jesus' point, do you want to follow? Do you want to be one of my apprentices? Do you want to order your life around mine and experience the life that you will find following the narrow way? Here's the point and here's the posture. I want you to live low. I want you to live low. What do I want your outlook to be? I want you to live low. To live low is to live with a posture that no act of service is beneath you. To live low is to live with the posture that no person is beneath you. To live low is to live with a readiness and an eagerness to serve another. To live low is to live with an awareness of others, their needs, and how you can serve To live low is to pay attention. To live low is to never be in such a hurry that you can't slow down long enough for the benefit of somebody else. To live low is to never think you're too important for anybody else. Jesus makes clear that that would be a foolish thought. Come on, to live low is to be remarkable in the way that you care for others. To live low is to make yourself and to make myself available, accessible, and approachable no matter status or position. To live low is to have a proper awareness of self and not live with an elevated or inflated or distorted view of yourself that comes at the expense of others. Come on. To live low is to elevate the needs of others. To live low is to forget about what's in it for me and to learn how to ask the question, how can I help? How can I serve? To live low is to value others 
Because every single person that you come eyeball to eyeball with is somebody for whom Jesus ultimately served and died for. As Lord, if he served, none of us are above it. And as our teacher, if he did, so should This is the narrow way. Live low. The counterintuitive, countercultural, seemingly counterproductive way of Jesus that the narrow path is marked by. And, and come on, it's so easy for us to live our lives forgetting all of that and not living low, but trying to make our way up. But here's the irony, is that the people that live low, like those are the people that we wanna be around Those are the people that we want to be friends with. Those are the people we hope and pray our kids become friends with. Those are the people that we want our kids to marry. Those are the people that we want to marry. Those are the people we want to work with. These are the people that we want to hire. These are the people that we admire. These are the people that we ultimately want to be. Those that are willing to live So the challenge for you and for me is to take a personal inventory right now, right? Take a personal inventory. In what area of your life, in what relationship in your life do you need to adjust your posture? Where do you need to adjust your posture? No elbows, okay? Don't raise your hand. But come on, where where, where, is it in your marriage? Is it in the way that you relate to your spouse? Is it in the way that you date? Is it in the way that you've, you know, you're, you're, you're handling engagement? Come on, where do you need to adjust your posture? Is it at work? Like, do you need to work better at making your coworkers look good instead of trying to look good at anybody else's expense? Come on, if you're the boss, do you need to make it a habit to show the people that work for you that there is nothing beneath you just because you signed their paychecks? Come on. Is it with your kids? Is it with your neighbor? Is the way you just see random people that you interact with day in and day out. Where do you need to adjust your posture? You want to follow me, Jesus says. Not I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you. I want you to live low. And right after this moment, he washes their feet in John chapter 13, the beginning, and then a few verses later, right there in John chapter 13, again, it's the same conversation. They're in these final few moments together. He looks at them. He's about to leave, and he's like, listen, I just washed your feet, so let me just tie a bow on this. Let me tie a bow on the way. He looks at him, and he, and he tells him this, and this verse has become a really big deal for our church, and I hope it continues to be, but he says, hey, a new command I give you. This was the context in which he gave this verse, right after the foot washing and before he went to the cross. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, by this, everyone will know that you are one of my disciples. This is how everyone will know you are my, uh, one of my apprentices. By this, everyone will know that you've ordered your life around mine. If you love one another. Jesus washes their feet. And just before he goes to the cross, he just sums it all up. A full circle moment. Especially when you look at the Sermon on the Mount where he gave us the golden rule, treat others and love others the way that you would want to be treated. And right here, this is the platinum rule. Love others as I have loved you. I just washed your feet. 
a prelude to the cross. So here's the way, here's the catch-all. Here is the umbrella under which everything else falls. Love as I have loved you. Give to others as I have given to you. Serve others as I have served you. Seek out the good for and in others as I have done for you. Show love with no bounds, limits, or conditions. This is how they'll know you're an apprentice. This is how they'll know you're a follower of the way. Jesus says, I want you to live love. Live low and live love. Live low and live love. Live low and live love. And come on, can you imagine for just a moment Can you imagine if every Christian that believed in Jesus actually followed Jesus and modeled what our teacher modeled? Could you imagine the world? Could you imagine the world? Could you imagine our communities? Could you imagine our city? Can you imagine a world where every Christian chose to live low and live love? And let me just encourage you for a moment. All right, let me encourage all of our churches. I mean, this is so incredible. This is one of the reasons I love our church so much is that we do this at various times throughout the year. We do this. Our various initiatives, Be Rich. I mean, what you guys do makes a difference. We live low and we live love. And history will tell you that when Christians follow, communities flourish. When Christians follow, communities flourish. But here's my challenge to all of us. Let's not let living low and living love just fall into the seasonal calendar and the seasonal activity of our church, which I'm so grateful that we jump into. But my challenge is to make it a daily pattern of the life that you live as the church, as the very followers of Jesus. Because communities will flourish. So will your relationships, your marriages, your families, your influence, reputation of the church changes. Imagine the impact if we decided to live low and live love. And according to Jesus, you'll be blessed. Not materially or financially or Life will be easier or better, but you'll experience something on the other side of that posture that you will not find trying to position yourself to be bigger, better, and above. So, my friends, the narrow way as taught and modeled to the nth degree on the cross by our teacher is to live low and live love. And that, concludes our series, This is the Way, where we have worked to recapture what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. I want our churches full of people that follow in the way of Jesus. And and what I want to do here, just kind of wrap up our series, I want to tie a bow on the three weeks together. I want to kind of try to put it all together for us. And if you're just tuning in for the first time, I just want to give you a kind of a, a catch up, right? If you'll remember week one, I told you, I told you that I want you to start with where you are, not with where you think you should be. And so I kind of had these three categories. You might be curious or convinced or committed, right? In, in your context of faith. And, and I challenge you, if you were convinced 
or committed. Here was my challenge to you. My challenge to you is to get dusty. And if, and if you haven't heard any previous message, you're like, what are you saying? <clears throat> A little bit of context. You remember this? There's this common blessing in the first century. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Those, those, those dusty streets that we talked about earlier, here was the common blessing. To all these apprentices following rabbis around, may you follow so closely that by the end of the day, all the dust that gets kicked up from the back of their sandals, may you be covered in it because you followed your teacher so closely. So my challenge to all of us who were convinced or committed was to get dusty. And we've unpacked together what that looks right, right? If you're, if you're taking notes, here's a summary to write down. To get dusty is to surrender daily. Every day, Lord, God, this isn't about me and what I want, but I want to follow you even if it comes at the expense of what I want. And it's to live sacrificially. Sacrificially. It's, it's okay, God, um, what do you want for me? There's a part of me that I need to say no to. There's a part of me for my sake and for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others I just need to deny. And then we've, as we've said today, live low and live love. This is what it looks like to be a church and to be followers that get dusty. May we make it our ambition to be devoted to the way of Jesus. But there was another group of you that maybe you weren't convinced or committed, but you've certainly been Curious, And my challenge to you in week one was to stay curious. But maybe throughout the course of this series, you've seen Jesus in a brand new light. Maybe throughout the course of this series, you've, you've asked some questions and you've investigated Jesus in the gospels and maybe you read on the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you had a conversation with somebody that invited you to church and who Jesus is has become a little bit more clear. So maybe for you, Today, maybe, not for everybody, but maybe for you today is an opportunity to move from curious to convinced and a little bit more committed. See, John 13, foot washing. Later on in John 13, he gives them and he sums up this command, live low, live love. And then, and then Jesus, right there in John chapter 14, One of the last things he says to his disciples, he shares with them one of the most famous teachings that he's ever taught. And I can't think of a more fitting way to end this series. John 14, six. I am the way, he says. I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. We've wrestled with this series that Jesus is the way in one sense that he's revealed for us the way that he's called us to follow, how to be a Christian. But here, he looks at his disciples and he tells you and I how to become one because Jesus is also the way for you and I to be redeemed. That there's this thing called sin that separated us from our heavenly father. It made us incompatible with God, but then Jesus came down. Jesus took the lowly position. He denied himself. He picked up his cross and he lived love because he died a death that he didn't deserve on your behalf and on mine. And after going to the grave, he rose on the third day, defeating the power of sin and death so that whoever believes in him might experience new life now and forever. The greatest act of love the world had ever 
seen. And so he says, I am the way. I am the way in this sense, the connection between two things, a link between God and sinners. I am the truth that Jesus is completely reliable and trustworthy in all that he says and does. And I am the life that all life here, now, and forever flows through me. So believe and then follow. And the invitation is there, right where you are today, to believe. To believe that Jesus came to rescue you, to save you from your sin, to give you a brand new way to see life and a brand new path to follow. Not because anyone earned it, but because his grace and his love wanted to bestow it. So Jesus, he is our teacher who came to show and to teach us, hey, this is the way, follow me, order your life around mine. Then he came to demonstrate to the world how great his love is for us when he died and rose again because he is the way. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the heart of Jesus, for the model of Jesus. Give us the courage, wherever that lands on us today, to do something with what we've just heard. If it's to ask another question of curiosity, may you give us the courage to ask another question. If it's to take a step towards Jesus we've never taken before, I pray you'd give us the courage to do so. If it is to believe, give us the courage to do so. If it's to figure out how to keep living, not just convinced, but committed in some kind of relationship, give us eyes to see what it looks like to live low and to live love. And may the world get a better picture of who you are as a result. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.